seeking, seeking, seeking for a place to call home. Scatter, scatter, scatter across the globe we roam. Who are we? And where do we come from? Are you going my way? I know I'm not the only one. You're looking right through me. Oh, can't you see? Cutting, cutting, cutting eyes, they all stay. People, people, my people, do we belong anywhere? I left Babylon behind, and what do I see? The Garden of Eden, betrayed by inequality, miseducation, ignorance, and poverty. to rest your head home your shelter your bread home a place for cool meditation home seed of our peace loving nation home the land of our ancestors place in our hearts for our brothers and our sisters home the quiet comfort in my soul I call home 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 Another edition of The More the Merrier with Donna G. I'm here with you for the hour, and the focus today is audiobooks, namely memoirs, autobiographies of uh, Canadians. 
And I thought I would do this again for you because, as usual, I keep adding to the books I want to read, want to listen to, but the pile never seems to get smaller. And if you're looking for something to read, something to listen to, then I thought, why not share my list so that at least somebody out there is reading some of these books. As usual, I will have music for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy these samples. If you're new to my audiobook shows, these samples are taken from the Toronto Public Library, and I play only the samples that would be available to you if you went to torontopubliclibrary.ca and listened to a sample. So I don't go past um, what has been made public. So it ends where it ends. And if it intrigues you, then you might want to um, pick up the ebook, the book, listen to the audiobook. The choices are yours with just a free library card. So let's get started. Here are three from Down East. I'm sure you will recognize the voices. Penguin Random House Canada presents Talking to Canadians, a memoir by Rick Mercer. Read for you by the author. For Gerald and George. Introduction. This is a memoir. Because of that, I relied on my own expert testimony. It is the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Kind of. Three people walk into a bar and spend an evening together. 25 years later, each of them will have a very different version of what occurred on that night. Or I should say, two of them will. One will swear on their mother they were not in attendance and, in fact, out of the country at the time. When faced with photographic evidence to the contrary, they will simply say, well, that's not how I remember it. Under the guise of research while writing this book, I called up many old friends and colleagues and questioned them on their version of events, curious to see whether theirs conformed with mine. For the most part, they did, but sometimes they did not. Always the conversation took strange and wonderful turns, and we always went down roads entirely irrelevant to anyone but us. It was grand. For those calls, those catch-ups, I shall be eternally grateful. If I have any advice, it's pick up the phone and place those calls. You don't need to be writing a book to do so. Like most Canadians in the entertainment business and all Newfoundlanders in any business, all I ever wanted in life was the opportunity to go to work. And work I did. And I was fortunate to work in the field of my choosing. I understand this is the equivalent of winning the lotto. That it happened was only possible because I stand on the shoulders of giants. I speak of the actors and writers and show business pioneers in Newfoundland, and in Canada. This is my version of events. Some names have been changed, some locations have been altered, some reputations have been protected. Regards, and thanks for watching. Rick Mercer, Chapels Cove, Newfoundland and Labrador, 2021. Prologue. October 1990, Ottawa. The hotel is called the Beacon Arms, but I've only heard it referred to by locals as the Broken Arms. It's the kind of place where you know instinctively upon entering your room that you should keep your shoes on. The carpet looks like a crime scene. For the past three days, a small Kentucky Fried Chicken box has been sitting on the floor of the elevator. 
The cover is off, and inside there is a single chicken breast and a French fry on a plastic fork. Earlier this morning, on my way down for coffee, I noticed the box was still there, but someone had absconded with the chicken. There is a Yuck Yucks comedy club in the basement. I wonder which Canadian comedy legend was peckish last night before bed. I'm up at this hour because my one-man show is about to be reviewed on CBC Radio. The publicist from the National Arts Centre is up early as well. She wants to pull a quote from that review for ads that are being placed in tomorrow's newspapers. The quote will also be plastered on the show posters that will go up all over downtown Ottawa. They are hoping for something along the lines of, Run! Don't walk! To the NAC! At home in Newfoundland, the CBC Morning Show is going to carry the review as well. Newfoundlanders are always proud of anyone who does well on the mainland, and they love the narrative of a young Newfoundlander having a hit show in, of all places, the National Arts Centre. The host of the Ottawa Morning Show teed up the segment with a pretty flattering introduction. There is a one-man show at the National Arts Centre which is getting a lot of attention in political circles. Why? Well, he continued, it is a comedy about, of all things, the Meech Lake Accord. Can a constitutional crisis be funny? Well, let's find out. In the studio is theater critic Brian Gosnell. He is here to review Rick Mercer's Show Me the Button, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die. A very kind setup. I was feeling pretty good about this. The show the night before had gone really well. Great, in fact. We had a full house. People laughed in the right spots. I didn't rush, which I tend to do. I felt like I killed it. It might have been the best night of my life. The reviewer began to speak. Actually, I'm not going to review the production I saw last night at all. That got my attention. I'm out of bed now, bare feet on the dubious carpet. Instead of a review, I'm going to read an open letter to Mr. Mercer. I hope he is listening. I was listening. He cleared his throat for effect. Dear Mr. Mercer, show me the button I'll push it is not a play. You are not a playwright, nor are you an actor. Please leave the theater. You have nothing to offer. Penguin Random House Canada Audio presents... Son of a Critch, a Childish Newfoundland Memoir, by Mark Critch. Read for you by the author. For Jacob, Will, and Lucy. This is my story. I so love watching as you write yours each and every day. Some of the names of my classmates and teachers have been changed, out of respect for their privacy, and out of my desire to not have the crap beaten out of me. Prologue. As I write this, I'm sitting in the Prime Minister's plane en route to Vietnam. I'm traveling with the Canadian media to cover Justin Trudeau's first official visit there, but I'm not a journalist. I'm a comedian. For the past 15 years, I've been a writer and performer on Canada's longest-running TV comedy. This hour has 22 minutes. Now in its 25th season. My time on 22 Minutes has allowed me to do things I'd never have had the opportunity to experience otherwise. It brought me to Afghanistan, where my show for the troops was interrupted by a Taliban rocket attack. It brought me to China, where I pretended to be a Canadian premier and was given the same private show at the famous Laoshe Tea House that they gave Presidents Nixon and Bush one. It brought me to Moscow, where after the Russians had planted a flag on the Arctic seabed to lay claim to the energy riches of the North, I planted a giant Canadian flag in the middle of Red Square. I laid claim to it, based on their rules, and was questioned by the policia. My job has taken me to the White House four times. On my second visit, a staffer who recognized me, he was part Canadian, 
brought me down to the basement under the press briefing room, where the tiles from President Candy's swimming pool still lined the walls. I was invited to sign my name on a tile right alongside the signatures of Frank Sinatra and Muhammad Ali. My role as the show's roving reporter has taken me to the top of the Peace Tower in Ottawa. I was invited to sign my name again, this time on the wall of the small room under the flagpole. Being a comedian has taken me from the basement of the White House to the roof of the Parliament buildings, but it has never taken me this far from home. The Socialist Republic of Vietnam is halfway around the world from Newfoundland and Labrador. I can't really get any farther away without starting to come back home again. It's 4 a.m., and we stopped at Anchorage, Alaska to refuel. The PM has taken the opportunity to go for a jog along the runway. Hey, Critch, he shouts from the front of the plane. Are you coming? No, I am not. I have work to do. Also, I would never be able to keep up, and I prefer to embarrass myself on TV. Just about everyone else on the plane is sleeping. It will take a full day to reach our destination, and the weight of that journey is ever-present. Journalists are taking turns, one sleeping on the seats and the other on the floor between rows, then switching every couple of hours. This is not a fancy plane like Air Force One. Air Force One is a flying fortress. It has advanced communications capabilities and can be refueled mid-flight, giving it unlimited range. The Prime Minister's plane is a little more modest. It's 30 years old, doesn't have Wi-Fi, and still has ashtrays in the washrooms. It doesn't even have a cool name like Air Force One. Call it what you will, but Royal Canadian Air Force One could very easily be Air Canada Flight 692 with service from Winnipeg to Moncton. Nothing fancy, very Canadian. I am far away from home, but home is never far from my mind. My mother was recently admitted to hospital at 80 years of age. She's been living on her own for three years now since my father passed away at the age of 93. She took a bad turn, as people in their 80s often do, but she's on the mend again and insisted that I go on this trip. Still, everything in my being makes me think I shouldn't have left. I should be with her. My job has taken me all over the world, but I never see it like that. To me, it has always taken me away from home. Newfoundlanders have always traveled for work, whether it's out to the Grand Banks of the Atlantic Ocean to catch cod or to the Alberta tar sands to help power the country, or in my case, to Vietnam with the Prime Minister to make jokes. We go where the work is. Traveling all the time comes with sacrifice, but it's worth it because the thought of moving away forever is too much to bear. The PM returns to the plane from his run, fresh-faced, followed by four tired-looking RCMP officers who, unlike me, were bound by duty to jog alongside. Critch, Trudeau calls playfully. I thought you were going to come, man. You missed out. I laugh and promise to join in next time. The engines rev as we prepare to make our way again along the 13,743 kilometers to Hanoi. I turn my head to the window and close my eyes. I think of my mother. I dream of home. Penguin Random House Canada presents All Over the Map, Rambles and Ruminations from the Canadian Road by Ron James. Read for you by the author. To June, Kaylee and Gracie who were always there when I went elsewhere. Go ahead, chase fame. See what that does to your soul. Billy Conley. Follow your bliss, Joseph Campbell. Look here, you've never seen this country. It's not the way you thought it was. Look again, Al Purdy. Forward. All over the map, 
is a travelogue through time, a road trip between one comedian's ears, taking pit stops in the past and present that embraces the mysteries of people and place. The comedian is me, by the way, and I wouldn't be writing the book were I not one. I'd be busy in the lab with other nuclear physicists playing with boron. Now, that's a lie. You need good marks of math to be a nuclear physicist, and I repeatedly flunked that subject in school because I'd rather talk than think. I'd also rather hit the road looking for laughs than deal with a nuclear meltdown in a cooling tower any day. So there's that, too. By the way, uh, when I write mysteries of people in place, I don't mean the run-of-the-mill mysteries, like, are Sasquatches real? And if so, why does the only existing film footage of them look like a neighbor running through a backyard in a hair suit they sewed in their man cave? Or... Was the last recorded sighting of the serpent Ogopogo, which legend says swims in British Columbia's Lake Okanagan, authentic, or the result of the claimant enjoying a magic mushroom-induced afternoon? Perfectly plausible. I certainly saw my fair share of giant lizards after scarfing a mitt full of shrooms at a folk festival or two back in the day. Believe me, a trio of seven-foot salamanders singing back up for Valdi in 1978 was a vision a 20-year-old kid could have done without. Perhaps the most enduring of Canadian mysteries, though, is how many mosquitoes, over what period of time, does it take to drain your dry of blood while you're attempting to fill your bucket with the blueberries you're picking north of Temiskaming? Actually, it's 729,623 in under five minutes. How about that? Hey, maybe I am good at math. At the risk of pushing the envelope in the hypothetical realms of the fantastical, the mystery I'm referring to is the tactile connection of spirit to place. It's the soul note that connects you to the authentic. I heard it ringing Sunday morning clear when touring cities, towns, and whistle stops along 7,821 kilometers of our nation's connective tissue, the Trans-Canada Highway. The hidden boons accrued in a call to adventure answered occurred when I crossed paths with fellow pilgrims who, unprompted, shared their stories that in the telling delivered a currency far greater than a payday's treasure. Whether in coffee shops, hotels, planes, street corners, food courts, or bars, when these strangers started talking, I'd just listen. When they were done and disappeared to where they'd come from, I wrote it all down so I wouldn't forget. I'm glad I did, because those conversations took place well before we were forced to close off the real world we actually walk through in exchange for in the digital one we don't. They happened before everything changed. They happened before a worldwide pandemic shifted our psychic paradigm, dramatically altering daily life, crippling economies, gutting government infrastructure, and at this writing, leaving 3.6 million global casualties in its wake. The performing arts suffered a particularly devastating blow. Throughout the global village, those places where practitioners of the myriad disciplines that comprise the profession once plied our trades, theaters, stadiums, bars, clubs, concert halls, were shuttered to protect audiences and performers alike from an invisible enemy ten times more contagious than the common flu. This killing of authentic social contact made social media's inauthentic contact a mandatory lifeline. What for me had once been a live audience seated in theaters suddenly became an unseen audience seated somewhere in cyberspace. With everyone housebound, Zoom became Cyberworld's ubiquitous delivery system. Where I'd once stood on stage hearing laughter, I now stood in my living room hearing, well, nothing at all. Given the contemptibly quiet crowds I'd weathered in my first few years as a stand-up, 
The irony wasn't lost on me. Means you gotta love when life comes full circle, eh? Streaming gigs live from my living room. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. Membering by Austin Clark. Read for you by Nigel Sean Williams. This is a bespeak audio editions book. For T, Patty, and for Howard Matthews, the First Floor Club, Betty Clark, the Honorable Roy McMurtry. You remember? I remember. I remember too. What do you remember? I remember everything you want me to remember. You really remember everything in true? From a conversation 70 years ago on a humid afternoon in a school in Barbados, the St. Matthias Elementary School for Boys. A time has come and gone. Some memories are captured in a song. Some stories told an artist's hand, something to find among the sand, something to hold, remembering another world. Another world. Abby Lincoln, Another World, from the album Holy Earth, New York City, 1998. Chapter One, A Little Black Englishman. I'm sitting in my study on a Friday afternoon in 2004, 49 years after I came limping through a hurricane whose name I cannot remember, although it is the name of a woman, and I always remember the names of women. But this is 1955. On the 29th day in September, 50 years later, almost to the day, in this same weather that used to be called, and could be called, Indian summer. A term which to me, a novelist, is filled with romantic notions and presumptions, but which the pervading decency of political correctness, like the fury of the hurricane, I remember the name we called it by now, Janet. Janet, 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 Hurricane Janet. I have known many Janets, and all of them were harmless, beautiful women. But here I am, in this study that looks across a road well-traveled in the rushing mornings to work, and hardly traveled with such anxiety and intent during the hours that come before the rush to work, walked on and peed on by the homeless and the prostitutes and the pimps, and the men and women going home to apartments in the sky surrounding and overlooking Moss Park Park, as I like to call it. Moss Park Park is where life stretches out itself on its back, prostrate and filthy, hopeless bouts of heroism and stardom. For these men who lie on the benches and the dying grass are heroes to themselves and to one another, in a pecking order that is full of righteous daring and righteous chances of stupidity, like crossing the road in front of speeding cars that put the brakes at the last minute on with a squeak. The image of a smashed head on the shining bonnet of a Mercedes-Benz is not on the menu for tonight's dinner in Cabbage Town, or the delay caused by the dying words of the homeless man about his residence in a filthy halfway house behind the bastions of Victorian and Georgian townhouses that hide this degradation from the fleeing man in the German-made automobile. Such homelessness 
as politicians like to call this layer of detestation, greets me every day on the green grass clean by the morning and the dew, like a set of teeth passed over by a smear of toothpaste, or by warm water seasoned in salt, or by bare fingers that had dug during the night in the five minutes ticking off on a Rolex watch, or counted off in seconds by the friction of a French-leathered, hectic moment behind the fences of the townhouses, deep into the panties of the woman who stands like a sentry at the corner of two streets, punctual and reliable as a security guard, and whose color or cleanliness he wisely cannot see in the dark, leaf-shaking night hidden by the trees that have no tongue in the chastising, speechless mouth of satisfaction. And I wonder why these men, with their picked-out women, all standing in the darkness of street corners shaded by trees and the darkness of their own intentions, should choose such a little, such a small, short hiatus from their lives of homelessness or lovelessness. I have been homeless once, in a most dramatic manner. I need a glass of watermelon to dampen my driest hour. I said I need a glass of watermelon to moisten my staying power.
Curated by the people, for the people. CIUT 89.5 FM is the sound of your city. Red maple rooted in Aboriginal soil. Long before Jacques Cartier, you recall. Defenseless against the clear cutters mall. Yellow aspen heed winter's call. Black bear nest beside suburban sprawl. The price of progress, build another mall. Humans love nature, always leave our trace. War trophies hang on the cottage mantel place. Why must we colonize every living space, including the planets in outer space? Our ruling classes have priced it all, the water, the air, the DNA in my balls. Build a house on greed and war, Star Wars they say will protect us all. The military-industrial complex will always find the perfect pretext to civilize barbarians whose land is next, and many of us will follow their text. But let me put it in this context. Who is going to win the big race when every living thing has been displaced? Their poor genes in that ear of corn They will soon own rights to the child unborn And when the storms have washed away the soil Who will heal the festering boil? Not a million dollars, not even time Can replace the old growth obtruded without a trace If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. The focus today is audiobooks that are available at the Toronto Public Library. TorontoPublicLibrary.ca. All you need is your library card. Or they may be available at the branch in your area, your local library. Do check and find out. Coming up, we have some more audiobooks, this time of a First Nations focus. I hope you will appreciate these and maybe add them to your wish list. Penguin Random House Canada presents Unreconciled Family, Truth, and Indigenous Resistance by Jesse Wenty. Read for you by the author. For Norma and Barbara. Prologue. I remember the exact moment I learned I was an Indian. It was a summer afternoon 
when I was about ten. My softball team was playing in Topham Park, just around the corner from our home in Toronto's East York, and I was coming up to bat, crossing the infield dirt, to take my place at the plate. The league was a local one. Both teams made up of kids from the neighborhood. I'd played in it from the time I was five, starting out in T-ball at the smallest of Topham's three diamonds, and working up to the big field, which had dugouts, a scoreboard with an announcer's booth, grandstands, and makeshift bullpens where the pitchers could warm up. I'd walk over to watch when the men's teams played there at night, the big lights turning everything a bright, washed-out yellow. The ball would almost glow when hit into the air, and, if it carried far enough, would fade into the darkness as it sailed beyond the reach of the light poles. Baseball was big for our family then. My dad, who'd grown up a Cubs fan in Chicago, had embraced the Blue Jays when the franchise was born in 1977. He'd listened to games on a transistor radio he carried while doing work around the house, or watched them with me on the little Zenith TV in the living room. Occasionally, he'd buy the cheap outfield tickets you could get at the grocery store during the summer, and we'd see a game at Exhibition Stadium in seats that were angled a little bit off, so they had to turn slightly to take in the action. Dad played third base and some outfield in a slow-pitch league for a while, too, and would later coach both me and my sister. Some of my fondest childhood memories are of spending time with him at the batting cage or playing catch at the park. In our softball games, it was common for players to make cracks at the opposition, refrains that tended to max out at the we-want-a-pitcher-not-a-belly-itcher level. That bruising psychological warfare was mostly directed at the better players because, hey, they were good. I would classify myself as just okay all around, but bordering on good at the plate. I'd make consistent contact and was patient enough to take a walk if the pitcher couldn't find the zone, which happened regularly. And when I did catch a hold of one, I could hit it far, a combination of decent technique and being fairly big for my age. So getting jeered at wasn't unusual and was maybe even expected. It was something you laughed off or ignored, just a part of the game. What I heard that particular afternoon was something different, though. Not one of the rhymes or cracks repeated to the point where they lost all meaning that rang out when other kids went up to bat. This was a sound reserved for me. It started all at once, as if they'd met up to plan it before the game, all the opposing players flapping their hands in front of their open mouths to make the noise. They were war-whooping. It was a sound I'd heard before, but I couldn't place it immediately, or maybe I didn't want to. Later, when I was old enough to get stopped by the police, I'd become more familiar with that pattern of thought, pushing aside the certain knowledge of why this was happening to look for some good reason, some reason other than the fact that my identity alone could incite in another person a desire to do harm. That my simple existence could be seen as a provocation or offense. I knew the noise, though. I knew what it meant, and that understanding could be delayed for only so long. I knew it from Saturday morning cartoons, 
watched from behind a bowl of cereal, the last of the milk disappearing to reveal the sugar clumped at the bottom. It was the noise made by the Indians Bugs Bunny killed, counting them off on a chalkboard and singing as he went. One little, two little, three little engines, four little, five little, six little engines. Oops, sorry, that one was a half-breed. Scrubbing a mark in half as he corrected himself. Penguin Random House Canada presents Res Rules My Indictment of Canada's and America's Systemic Racism Against Indigenous Peoples By Chief Clarence Louis Read for you by the author With forward by the Right Honourable Paul Martin I dedicate this book to my kids and grandkids Vern, Clarissa, Serena, Darian and Zenea, the mother of my children, Sandra, Sam, Brenda, my spouse, and my mean res mom. Everyone calls her Lucy. Also to all the past, present, and future OCS Indian Band members, and all our cousins throughout Indian country, res country on both sides of the Canada-US border. That foreign colonial border continues to divide my people but it did not divide our ancestors who could not speak, read or write English or French. I continue to think of the Aboriginal people of Australia in the Marway of New Zealand, who asked me to speak on their lands and have also suffered from colonial racism. May all the Redskins, one Indian magic day in the future, wake up and fulfill the prophecies and dreams of our ancestors that we remain a distinct people with our own language and the unshackled pride of 10,000 years of heritage and culture on our traditional territories. Look at the old black and white historical pictures of the hostiles and savages, the old Indian frontier photos, Chief Sittenbull, Chief Joseph, etc. I hang the old frontier pictures of those two chiefs above my desk for a reason. I see in their eyes the look of prisoners of war, a once free, economically independent people. But most important, in their eyes I do not see a conquered people. Read the words of our ancestors as they spoke up against the racist treatment by the leaders of the Canadian and American governments. Our spiritual knowledge keepers have been asking our people to wake up for a long, long time. I may not be around when our communities finally fully wake up and rid ourselves of the colonial traps, like the Indian crab syndrome in drug and alcohol abuse. But I see the signs of our people reuniting with their tribal past and becoming stronger and taking our rightful place as economically sovereign leaders and protectors of our traditional lands and waters. Our core principles must never change regardless of the new challenges of climate change and pandemics, our people, present and future, must look to their ancestral past for guidance, and no matter what, must never forget how to Indian up. Soon after this, my father sent for me. I saw he was dying. I took his hand in mine. He said, Always remember that your father never sold his country. A few years more, and white men will be all around you. They have their eyes on this land. This country holds your father's body, 
never sell the bones of your father and your mother. Chief Joseph Nesperus. Forward. This is an important book for all Canadians. I may not agree with some of the opinions stated here, but this is a book that should be read and considered as it is a look at who we are and how we got here by one of the country's most significant Indigenous leaders. For far too long, Indigenous voices have been underrepresented in our country's dialogue, making this kind of book long overdue. I like Clarence Louis, and we have known each other for several years. I respect his opinions even when we differ, which happens. However, it is important that he is able to express his views, even the harsh ones. The accomplishments of the Osoyoos Indian Band of British Columbia, under their long-time chief, are remarkable. This First Nations Reserve in the South Okanagan Valley has rightly been called a miracle in the desert. This band went from near bankruptcy and depression level unemployment to a thriving, self-sustaining... Our Voice of Fire, a memoir of a warrior rising. This is a House of Anansi audiobook written and narrated by me, Brandy Morin. To my creator, Yeshua, for never leaving or forsaking me, to my parents for giving me life and love, to my children, Faith, Luke, Danny, Elasia, and Judah in heaven. I adore you all. To my beloved Kokum in heaven, and to all missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, to their families and loved ones, and to the survivors. I am Brandy Morin. I am a proud Cree Iroquois French woman from the lands of my ancestors in Treaty 6 territories of the Michelle First Nation. But I did not always know this. For many years, I was disconnected from my heritage, my history, and my birthright. For many years, my power was hidden in smoke and shadow, my voice lost to the darkness. Prologue, Tina. I stood in the driveway of my friend's place and shifted impatiently from foot to foot, blowing on my hands for warmth. Springtime in Winnipeg doesn't exactly qualify as balmy, and that chilly morning in 2019 was no exception. I checked my phone for the hundredth time. Where were they? I'd barely slept last night, tossing and turning on the mattress on the floor in my friend's spare room. Morning seemed to take forever to arrive, as it always does when you're anticipating something. Finally, a white car pulled up and I jumped in the back seat. Two men sat in the front and my heart instantly jumped into my throat, as it did every time I had to ride in a stranger's car. I swallowed the fear and said a prayer. This is a job. We are a team and everything will work out, I told myself. Besides, I wasn't a helpless child anymore. I was 38 years old and working on a story with the New York Times. 
Here was arguably the most important media outlet in the world looking to give attention to our people. In all my years as a journalist, our stories had barely made the headlines in Canada. This was a huge breakthrough. Finally, our voices will be heard, and maybe the world will start to care about the injustices happening here, I thought to myself. I took a deep breath. The man in the passenger seat turned around. He was about 10 years older than me, with short, nicely groomed facial stubble and tousled dark hair. He might have been able to pass for a shorter version of Clark Kent. Brandy, he said, his hand extended. So nice to finally meet you. I'm Dan, and this is Aaron Vincent, our photographer. He motioned towards the driver with his other hand. Heart racing, I pushed myself forward and shook his hand. I knew who he was, of course. Dan Belivsky, Oxford University graduate and renowned journalist who'd spent his early career traveling the world as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times before returning home to Montreal to work as a Canadian correspondent exclusively for the New York Times. This is my first time in Winnipeg, actually. His voice had an unfamiliar lilt to it. Okay, I'm curious. Where's your accent from? I asked. He chuckled. Yeah, I get that a lot. You see, I've lived all over the world and speak a few languages, so French is the dominant accent. But there's a mix of London English and an influence from my time spent in Brussels. Pretty neat, I said with a gulp. Like he wasn't intimidating enough, but I reminded myself. I am the one who reached out to him, and he is the one who said yes. A few months before, I had emailed him on a whim to ask him whether the New York Times...
Thank you so much for tuning in to The More the Merrier today. Hope you enjoyed those samples from the audiobooks I played. Music on today's show was provided by Mosa Nishama with Home, Black Sam, Watermelon, Red Maple by Chet Singh, and Tribe Called Red, Redskin Girl. Tribe Called Red is now called Hallucination in case you're trying to look for them. Leaving you now with something by Drew Hayden Taylor. It is not a memoir. It's a YA vampire novel. And I just wanted to end with a sort of spooky First Nations treat. 
see you next week. If you need to get in touch with me, www.ciut.fm. Sundays, 1 to 2 p.m. Click on The More the Merrier. Bye-bye. The Night Wanderer, a native Gothic novel, written and narrated by Drew Hayden Taylor. This is an Anik audiobook. Prologue. One day, down by a slow-flowing river, an ancient Anishinaabe man was sitting under a tree, teaching his beloved grandchildren about the ways of life. He said, Inside of me, a fight is going on. It is a terrible fight between two wolves. One wolf is evil. He is fear, anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, competition, superiority, and ego. The other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, sharing, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, wisdom, friendship, empathy, generosity, caring, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. His grandchildren thought about the story for a few moments. Then one child asked, Grandfather, which wolf will win? Which one is stronger? The old man smiled and said, The one you feed. One. Pink. Purple. Some red and a dash of green. The man had seen them flicker and dance above the horizon in more than a dozen countries during his infinite wanderings. Many of those countries no longer existed or had changed in name and form, as had he. But this time, somewhere over the North Atlantic, the northern lights seemed to be beckoning him home. He sat on the north side of the plain, next to the isle, as he had insisted. As luck would have it, he had the road to himself, offering him an uninterrupted view through the window of the Aurora Borealis, as white people called them. The Ojibwe called them Wawate, and according to legend, they are the torches of great fishermen who light the night sky as they spear fish. It was a good sign, and the man believed in good signs. There had been somebody, a small woman with an Irish lilt to her voice, seated against the window when they first took off. Her name was Irene Donovan. But once the plane was up in the air, beginning its journey to North America, the woman had relocated several rows back. It had been Irene's plan to relax and enjoy the flight. She had not seen the movie and was looking forward to it, had no qualms about airplane food, and was hoping to nap and wake up just before landing. She loved going to Canada to visit her daughter. But something about her seatmate disturbed her mood. The man in the aisle seat seemed dark. That was the word for it. It was like there was an ominous storm inside him. It wasn't just his skin. And where could he be from, she wondered. The Middle East? Could he be a terrorist? Maybe he was Spanish or Central American. They were dark, too. Egyptian, possibly. But more than anything... It was the feeling of loneliness or, more accurately, the sense of emotional detachment that reached across the armrest between them. 
Being a good Irish woman, she stood with one foot firmly planted in the traditions of the Catholic Church and the other foot rooted in more superstitious grounds. Her family had long told stories of people who have such strong auras that they could practically overpower you. Irene, who had always felt a public disdain for such beliefs, now began to wonder if there was any truth to them. Moments before, she had been cheerful and optimistic about this flight. Now, she felt engulfed in a more sober and bleak mood. And it seemed to be coming from the man seated next to her, blocking her only way to the aisle. She tried to ignore the feeling, but the feeling simply wouldn't ignore her. A half hour of squirming uncomfortably was enough, and finally, she asked the flight attendant if she could move, pleading a dislike of window seats. Fear of heights, you know how it is. And she was gone. The man in the aisle seat was not insulted. In fact, he was pleased. He knew he was different and was used to others avoiding him. That was fine. He was an outsider among 